Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This case is why we lock our doors at night. Attacked all over California. The community was taken hostage. Brutal homicides. One of the most prolific serial killers in the history of this state, if not in this nation. Today we're going to launch a national campaign to help identify the Golden State Killer. I'm Joke Vinciun. And I'm Biagio Messina. Welcome to the Unmasking a Killer Companion podcast. This is where we delve deeper into the case of the Golden State Killer, the subject of our HLN documentary. He's one of the nation's most prolific serial killers, and he's managed to evade capture for over 40 years. So how does an offender commit 51 attacks and 12 murders inside the victim's own homes and never get caught? That's what we explored on the most recent documentary episode of Unmasking a Killer. And that's what we're digging deeper into today with Contra Costa County District Attorney Investigator Paul Holes. Paul has been working the Golden State Killer case for nearly 25 years. He was instrumental in connecting the Northern California sexual assaults with the Southern California rape and murder crimes. Paul knows this killer's methods, his M.O., and the behavior patterns that enabled him to escape capture. The Golden State Killer had a very unique M.O. He was smart, adaptive, he was always prepared. That's why no surviving victim was ever able to get a good look at his face and provide law enforcement with any kind of detailed description. But there are a few witnesses through the years who may have caught a glimpse of the Golden State Killer, and Paul has thoughts and theories about many of the composite sketches that eyewitnesses have provided. He's also addressing a new technology being used to aid law enforcement in aging composite sketches and how it pertains to the Golden State Killer case. The new technology is called phenotyping. Michael Street, a forensic artist, explains exactly what it is and how it works. DNA phenotyping is a fairly new science, and it's in its infancy. It's proved to work in select cases, but it's still building because they don't have enough information in the profile to accurately depict every facial feature. So oftentimes they rely on building the sketch using the DNA profile and having an artist fill in the blanks based upon maybe information from the police, an eyewitness, or maybe their own artistic instinct or what they know about anatomy. It doesn't necessarily tell you what's current in terms of that person's physical appearance. Are using drugs? Are they an outdoors person? Do they have cancer? I mean, a lot of things that affect the weight of their face, the structure of their face and such. So it's still an evolving science. It holds a lot of promise, but I think the value of having an artist involved to take that information, interpret it, and synthesize it into a whole face is pretty valuable. 
DNA phenotyping in terms of what it holds for the future, it's going to tell you eye color, hair color, ancestry of origin, which is very important. You know, it may or may not be valuable in terms of building the face, but if you already have a composite sketch and some very complete information from an eyewitness that you believe is accurate, I think some of these other things that help fill in the blanks will give a more complete portrait and profile of what the public should be looking for. With the Golden State Killer case, having all those composites out there, and in the future, if they're able to build a DNA profile in terms of eye color, hair color, ancestry of origin, I think in terms of connecting it to the sketches, whether it's the three or the 30-some that are out there, it's going to provide a significant drill down in terms of what the public should be looking for, and it should be a great benefit to the case. We're going to ask Paul Holes about phenotyping as it relates specifically to the Golden State Killer, and we'll also hear more in-depth details about the offender's very unique MO and pattern of behavior. is Paul Holes, Contra Costa County District Attorney Investigator. This man plays a crucial role in the Golden State Killer story, mainly that his curiosity led to finding three very old rape kits for cases way past the statute of limitation and therefore not prosecutable. But in his quest to test new DNA equipment, he started down a road that ended up connecting the Northern California East Area Rapist cases with the Southern California Original Night Stalker cases and thus started the search for the Golden State Killer. Paul, thank you so much for being here. Great to have you. Uh, It's great to be here. Thank you. Paul, have you ever thought, what if I hadn't come across those rape kits? Or if they'd been destroyed? What what do you think this case would look like without that definitive DNA link between these two crime series? Yeah, you know, I have thought about that. And you had active investigations going on down in Southern California in the original Night Stalker series. Um, I do believe that as those investigations proceeded, they just based on the distinctive M.O. that the original Night Stalker shared with the East Area Rapist, that there would have always been the question that they were the same individual, but there would never have been the DNA to actually prove it. So we were fortunate to have the DNA in Contra Costa County to prove they were the same individual. Right. And, you know, something I think is so fascinating that a lot of people forget, when these crimes were committed, DNA wasn't yet, it wasn't a crime-fighting tool. It wasn't the DNA we know today. Investigators didn't even know about DNA. So the East Area Rapist crimes were actually first connected through M.O. Um, As we saw in the episode, you know, the offender had a very specific script and a series of actions that were easily identifiable. Uh, But one of the questions we run into a lot is why couldn't more be learned from the evidence? Why wasn't more of his identity revealed through what was found at the crime scene? Well, we we are talking about the 1970s. And back in the 1970s, forensic science really was in its infancy. Uh, So when you start talking about what can you discern from physical evidence that the offender has left behind, it was minimal. We know about DNA today. We did not even know anything about DNA from the forensic perspective back in the 1970s. What they were literally doing back then was determining ABO type, secretor status. If lucky, we might get what's called an enzyme type in order to try to identify who the guy was. But it didn't give us a whole heck of a lot. If somebody, like in our case, East Area Rapist is an ABO type A, about 50% of the population has that ABO type. So it's not very informative and not 
much help in terms of identifying the person. Right. And even though you knew about fingerprinting in the 70s, um, the Golden State Killer seemed to always wear gloves. Were there actually ever any fingerprints found? No, of course, many of these crime scenes were processed for fingerprints, and we recovered a lot of fingerprints out of these houses. But you will recover fingerprints out of any house that you go in and, and process. Unfortunately, we aren't confident that we ever recovered a fingerprint that we can attribute to the East Area Rapist, leaving them behind. He always wore gloves. And I think that's, that's something that's important to understand about him is he was all about self-preservation. So everything he did in committing his crimes, he is trying to prevent leaving evidence to, that would get him caught. Uh, his one failing, which he couldn't know about, was he left his DNA across the state of California. Right. The Golden State Killer was also known to scout neighborhoods first, a location hunter of sorts, before narrowing in on a victim. In your opinion, why was the Golden State Killer able to break into so many homes? And why do you think he targeted those middle class neighborhoods? Well, the Golden State Killer was very sophisticated and a very accomplished burglar. And so he developed skills committing many burglaries, probably preceding the, the actual sexual assaults that he ultimately came to be known for. He demonstrates skill sets in his ability to break into houses that are up and beyond the average burglar. This is an individual that is performing, uh, breaking into houses uh, by punching holes in plate glass and windows and using a tool to undo the window latch or punching a hole in the window and feeding another tool in in order to remove a wood dowel out of the window track in order to be able to slide the window open. When you say punch a hole, though, you don't mean like they, they broke the window. It was like a very sophisticated, tiny hole of sorts, correct? This was a, a hole about the size of a dime. Uh, and that is very significant because it is not an easy thing to do. So he somehow acquired that skill, whether it was through trial and error or whether he had an occupation that allowed him to develop that skill. And then he applied that skill to commit these crimes. Wow. You know, and something else he did that I thought was interesting is he just brought so many tools with him, right? Flashlight, bindings, mask, gun, possibly a knife. You know, what's the theory on how he carried all these tools into the crime scenes? Oh, well, this guy, he, he typically is bringing some sort of duffel bag or doctor's bag with him. And he's bringing those tools that he needs to to carry out the crime with him. And he's he's prepared. So if plan A doesn't work, he has the tools needed in his bag in order to carry out plan B. So he was always thinking ahead. And he came prepared by carrying these. He may have even had a backpack. I don't know. But we do know that the victim saw him carrying uh, something akin to duffel bags or doctor's bags. So clearly he, he just had the skills and he had the planning to know what he needed to bring and get in and get out in one piece. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Did law enforcement ever find one of these bags? We never found a bag at all. Uh, he never left one behind. He never dropped one. And the only thing that uh, I'm aware of that we found that suggests something was dropped out of the bag were three pieces of paper along his escape route after the December 9th, 1978 attack in Danville. 
right? And we will get to that in in just a second. I, I wanted to, in terms of the MO, he used a very specific script, as we showed on the series. But why do you think he stuck so much to the script? Because I think you've even pointed out sometimes it just it was flat out false. But he he kept going to the same thing. Like, what advantage did that give to him, you think? He developed an MO that that worked. And that, in part, is, is why he kept going to the same uh, how to enter the house, when to enter the house, how to interact with the victims, because he, in addition to wanting to carry out his fantasies about committing these crimes, he also is trying to minimize the risk to himself so he doesn't get caught, so he doesn't get hurt. So he's thinking ahead of time, how am I going to do this? And he's committing crimes. And these offenders, as they commit crimes, they end up learning as they go. And, of course, his M.O. does adjust over time a little bit from past experiences. Uh, But very early on, he settles into what was seen in the show in terms of how he is dealing with the victims and getting in and out of the houses and where he's parking his his uh, vehicles in order to be able to be successful. And it proved to be a successful MO because he was able to commit, you know, over 50 attacks. Right. And I think what's so fascinating about it is because he has this down, he has his MO, it is working for him. He's attacking single women. And then the newspapers report it's only women without men in the house. And then he he just changes the script. He starts attacking couples. It seems incredibly ballsy and dangerous. And yet, from his very first couple attack, he seemed to be prepared. He was absolutely prepared. And I think that's very important to point out is when in attack number 16, when he attacks with a male present for the very first time, how he approaches that couple, he's already thought how to deal with that in terms of standing away from the couple. You know, of course, he's blinding with the flashlight. He's got a gun. He always had a gun when there was a male present. And he's now throwing bindings to the female and having her bind the male up before he approaches closer to the bed and goes hands on with the female to get her bound. He does that in that very first case. And he did the same M.O. when there were couples present, when there was a man present throughout the entire series. So attack number 16, he he now attacks couples. And I think another obviously very identifying characteristic and very frightening is his use of plates on the back of the husband as, a, as an improvised warning system of sorts. Is this plate technique, um, did he start using it from the very first couple attack or did, did that develop? No, in fact, in attack number 16, he does start using the plates as an alarm system on the male. Uh, so he thought about how am I going to know if this guy, if I'm leaving him alone in the bedroom while I've got his wife out in the family room and sexually assaulting her, how am I going to know if this guy's actually going to try to get up and come after me? And he ended up devising a method, whether he read about it, whether he you know, just came up with it, invented it on his own, I don't know. But he did that in that very first case. And then he proceeded to do that throughout the series. How unique is that to the Golden State Killer? Have you, I mean, you've seen lots of cases. Have you ever seen that kind of plate technique before? I personally have never had another case or another series. And I've been involved in law enforcement now and and looking at cold cases for 27 years with serial predators. Uh, I have never had another offender do that. And in fact, an old time FBI profiler 
oh, maybe 20 years ago now when I was talking to her about this case and she had seen cases across the nation. She said she had never seen a case in which the offender had done that. So this is an extremely unique M.O. aspect that this offender, the East Area Rapist, was doing. And I assume he's using dinner plates that he found at their home. He wasn't bringing them with him, correct? Uh, That's right. Yeah. In fact, uh, whether it be binding material sometimes, uh, weapons down in Southern California, or the plates that uh, are alarm systems, he's using things that are readily available in any house. And he knew that. So he could travel lightly, get inside a house, and if he needed to find additional bindings, he'd go into the closet and pull shoelaces out of the shoes. Uh, He would go to the kitchen, and if he didn't find plates in the kitchen, he would end up using perfume bottles or other trinkets that would be present in any house as an alarm system. So he was resourceful, and he just took advantage of what was present within the crime scene. Yeah, obviously showing, you know, a lot of confidence to march into a home and figure I'm going to find whatever I need here. Um, And it seems like in line with that, you know, one of the things the East Area Rapist was uh, known to do was make threatening calls both to law enforcement and to some of the victims. Now, understanding, you know, technology today is very different than the technology they had back then. Um, What efforts were made to track those calls? What could they do with those calls? What was the crime-fighting approach? Well, you know, back in the 1970s, it was the the very, you know, very old phone system, uh, very different than what you see today, which the phone system is all computerized. So the law enforcement, uh, the original investigators in the series uh, recognized early on that this offender was calling the victims both before and after the crimes. And they would work with the phone company to get traces put in place, traps put in place on the phone line. Uh, Unfortunately, it was the old system. And so when the offender would call, it was a situation in which the offender had to be on the line for a period of time for the phone company to actually be able to figure out where that phone call originated from. Um, Unfortunately, we never did get a good trace on any of the phone calls that were made. Uh, The original investigators also placed old-style tape recorders in the victims' houses hooked to the phones, uh, which was, I think, very progressive for them to do back in the 1970s. But it required the victims, when they received a threatening phone call, they actually had to push the record button on the recording device and make sure that the little cassette would would be wound up uh, so they could uh, record it and uh, We only got one instance in that method uh, in which his voice was recorded. One of the other things that we've learned is that, especially during the murder scenes, um, some clothing was missing from the crime scenes. The theory is maybe he got blood on him and he, you know, had to borrow a shirt and to be able to escape down the neighborhood without being noticed. You you mentioned the Domingo Sanchez crime scene to me um, the previous time we talked. How, How do you think that all came to play? this clothing being gone? Well, the in the Domingo Sanchez case, the, the interesting aspect of that is uh, he appears to have gone and was in a, a sort of a hand-to-hand combat situation with the male victim, Gregory Sanchez. Once he has finished bludgeoning both Gregory Sanchez and Sherry Domingo, it appears that he goes through the closet in the master bedroom and he's sliding the clothes hangers 
across the closet rod as if he's searching for a particular type of uh, item of clothing. In addition, he's dumping clothes on top of Gregory Sanchez. He always left his murder victims covered. On the escape route out the back sliding door in that case, there's an empty trash can by the front gate. And inside that that empty trash can was a clothes hanger that would have uh, held a pair of pants out of the master bedroom closet. I believe that in the bludgeoning of Gregory Sanchez, he did get blood spatter on his lower body, and he is now needing to put a pair of pants on to cover the blood spatter. So if he is caught or seen, people's eyes, whether it be law enforcement, if he's pulled over by a cop or witnesses, would not all of a sudden see all this blood on him. And I think it speaks to his forethought. He recognized, oh, I've got blood on myself. How am I going to be able to get away or, or maximize my chances of getting away? We've talked a lot about um, self-preservation in the series, and you've mentioned it here before. Um, are there examples of our offender bailing on attacks where he was like, oh, this is getting to be too much and, and him getting away? And I'm not talking about, you know, the aborted attacks where he's he's forced to interact with the victim who's fighting back, but just other t- attacks where maybe he had tied somebody up and was like, you know what, this doesn't feel right. Well, there's uh, an early attack up in Sacramento where he actually takes the victim out of her house. She's a teenage girl, takes her out of the house and walks her about 200 yards down a canal where he lays her down and cuts her clothes off to proceed with a sexual assault. And during that particular case, he just pushes away at a certain point and makes the statement, this isn't working right. And then he gets up and and walks off. Uh, And so in that case, something did not sit right with him. And it was either he didn't like where he was at and he was a little bit concerned about getting caught or whatever interactions he was having with the victim was not satisfying him. And he didn't just decided it wasn't worth pursuing any further. That's interesting. Is that the only case we know where he took the victim outside of the house? No, he he did that in uh, a couple of cases uh, in which he would go inside the house and uh, get control of the victim and then take them out into their backyard, for example, and tie them up and then go back inside the house and you know, take the items that he's going to take and then go back outside to the backyard. And uh, in some cases, he sexually assaults the victims outside. In some cases, he takes the victims back inside the house and sexually assaults them inside. Well, it seems like it's far more dangerous to do it outside. I mean, was that an escalation? Was that new? Like, what 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 do you think that was about? You know, what I think is, is going on there is he's unsure of what is going to be happening inside that house who is going to be coming home while he's there it might suggest that he has not uh, surveyed the house to determine sort of the living pattern of all the various people that live inside that house and typically when you see him taking the these victims out they're usually the teenage girls and so there's parents that live inside the house and he's probably concerned that the parents are going to be coming home at a certain point so now he's taking advantage of the absence of the parents to go after the victim, but he's getting them away from where he's going to be trapped if the parents come home. And I believe that is is his primary reason for doing that. Wow. Well, clearly, uh, he had a very, very unique approach to what he did. I, I think my question for you, obviously, times have changed. 
Uh, we've talked about a few ways, DNA, computerized telephone systems. Today, could GSK work the same way? No, I don't believe any offender could be do- committing the types of crimes that GSK was doing back in the 70s and get away with these types of crimes uh, for very long. I think modern technology, not only crime-fighting tools, but just in general, the uh, the prevalence of home security systems, of uh, surveillance cameras, uh, of automated li- uh, license plate readers that law enforcement does employ, the presence of 911 back in the 1970s when he's attacking, uh, it was before the days of the 911 emergency system. Uh, so when you start stacking all the new advances uh, in not only law enforcement, but what private citizens are now employing, it'd be very, very tough to get away with this type of uh, series. Well, for the record, that makes me feel a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> so another factor that helped the Golden State Killer evade law enforcement all of these years is that no victim ever saw his face. Law enforcement were unable to use victim accounts to create a detailed composite sketch of this offender. They do have eyewitness-generated composite sketches that they believe are of the Golden State Killer, but they can't say with 100% certainty. Paul holds details of various sketches in existence and which, if any, he considers reliable. And we'll talk to him about phenotyping and how it's being utilized in this case. Continuing our conversation with Contra Costa County District Attorney Investigator Paul Holes. Um, The Golden State Killer case has many composite sketches done by many different artists, though none are based on details provided by surviving victims, as the offender always wore a ski mask. However, many neighbors of victims have described strangers in the vicinity before or after attacks attributed to the offender. But how does it impact the reliability of these composites when more of them are generated by witness statements and not victim statements? Yeah, we have many different composites that have been put out there or generated during the original investigation. All of the composites in this case uh, that are related to the East Area Rapist series uh, are from witnesses that saw strange men in the neighborhood. None of our victims saw our offender's face. And unfortunately, any neighborhood has guys wandering around. And I I believe that most of these composites are of individuals that aren't the East Area Rapist. But a lot of people put great stock into one composite or, or over another thinking, well, this is what he must look like. I have no confidence in any of the composites that they accurately reflect what the East Area Rapists looked like back in the 1970s. Interesting. Now, you know, uh, the TV series, you know, we've released a web extra on HLN uh, with your story about the Primrose sketch. Can you give us a quick recap of that for those who didn't hear it? So the the Primrose sketch, uh, there was uh, an attack that occurred on Primrose uh, in Sacramento in 1977. Around the corner, uh, before that attack occurred, a, a woman was standing out on her porch and saw a man kind of walking uh, up uh, in the shadows. But at a certain point, he comes into the light from the street lamp, and she's able to get a good look uh, at his face. He stops when she she kind of backs away. She's kind of scared. 
She backs away into the shadows up on her front porch, which causes this this guy to stop because he senses or saw that motion of her backing up. But she's able to see him, and she watched him continue on and walk around the corner onto Primrose, and then later on that night, you have that particular attack. So that is one of those instances where possibly that may have been the East Area Rapist that was seen as he's approaching his crimes, the the attack location. So for you, this is one of the better sketches. Uh, For me, that is one of the better sketches, yes. I think another interesting sketch is the one that Rodney Miller provided. Um, We talk about him in the show. He interviews and tells us the story on how he came upon what is believed to be the East Area Rapist while the offender was prowling, gave chase when he got very close to catching him. The East Area Rapist shot Rodney in the stomach. Luckily, Rodney survived and was able to give a detailed description. Well, how do you think this Rodney Miller composite holds up? Well, the, the Rodney Miller case is interesting, and the, the composite in that case, uh, the one composite that I'm remembering was actually done by a teenage girl. There's two teenage girls that were walking just around the corner from the court in which all this occurred. And after they heard what sounded like firecrackers and some screaming, they see a man running directly at them. And he stops and they get a good look at his face before he ends up continuing on, kind of changing paths and continuing on to uh, run away. In that particular composite, it seems that these girls actually saw the person who was uh, responsible for shooting Rodney Miller. And if that is the East Area Rapist, then there's a chance it is, but there's also a chance it's not. Um, That might be a valid composite for that particular case. It's so interesting how hard it is with these composites, because as a public, you, you just want, OK, is this what he looks like? Is this, You know, you want an image to this evil. And there's so many of them. and You don't know what to pick and you don't know if they're reliable. You know, it's part I of want the to know what he looks like. You know, I've spent 24 years wondering who this guy is. I want to know what he looks like. Well, well, you know, one of the advances that I think is really interesting with sketches, and maybe you can speak a little bit to, uh, about it, I know it's an emerging technology, but phenotyping is a new way of actually using DNA to create a composite, extracting information, you know, that can form maybe what an offender looks like, eye color, male part, pattern baldness, that kind of thing. Um, where is law enforcement in terms of this case and phenotyping? Well, you know, using the the, the phenotyping, um, first you have to have a suitable DNA sample that is amenable to that technology. And it is a technology that we have uh, explored and we have generated some preliminary information, uh, but have chose not to release that to the public at this time. Is there a reason for that? Is it just the technology isn't there yet or, or why do you think that hasn't been released? That, you know, that is the primary concern uh, within the investigative working group is that because it is a maturing technology, we're, we're concerned about possibly releasing something but that might be wrong. And that is something that we're evaluating as time goes on. Sometimes we'll take a look at the information that the phenotyping has provided us and weigh it against suspects, people of interest that are, are called in to see how much these individuals match within the, the phenotyping results. 
but we're not using it to eliminate anybody. It's just better to gauge whether or not the suspects are following with, following it within the parameters in which the DNA suggests uh, that the, the, the ear's physical traits might be. Another question we get a lot, and maybe this is because of television and movies, but, you know, this idea of aging up a composite. You know, it's been 40 years. Obviously, if the Golden State Killer is out there still today, he's not going to look anything like any of those composites. Has that been considered, this this aging up of the composites? Uh, yes, it has. And uh, again, within within the task force, we have seen some preliminary aged composites based on the phenotyping results. Okay, now we're all uh, dying to see those, but um, we'll trust you guys um, to release them when they're ready. I wanted to talk about one other thing that we had a long conversation about, and you had a very interesting take on this, which is the Majori murder. And this is one of the cases that created a ton of composites coming out of that incident. On February 2nd, 1978, Brian and Katie Majori were walking their dog in the neighborhood and came upon a prowler, which is believed to possibly have been the East Area Rapist. Now, the prevailing theory has been that Brian, being a military police officer, confronted the prowler and was then shot and killed. Katie was cornered after running away and shot and killed as well. But I remember you had a very specific idea of how that crime played out. Can you tell us how you think that all went down? It appears in, in taking a look at the crime scene in that case that uh, Brian and Katie were possibly walking along La Gloria when they came across uh, a prowler. And it, it appears that the chase starts out on La Gloria and proceeds through a side gate from the house and goes through the backyard of this house, which has a swimming pool. You see a planter that has been tipped over, a, a little potted plant has been tipped over as if people were running by and, and hit it during that chase. The fence, the rear fence between that house and the house behind it had blown down in a storm. So the offender was able to just run into the rear neighbor's yard with Brian giving chase. And the offender ends up on the west side of the yard at the fence line, and Brian is behind him. Um, A witness on the second story starts to hear... Uh, shots and looks out the window and sees an offender standing there by the west fence line in that yard shooting down at the ground. So he's actually watching uh, Brian being shot, the male victim. That witness then sees the offender run around the back of that house and loses sight of him as he goes down the side of that house. And that's when you hear the female victim scream and then there's a gunshot. So that that's when Katie's being being killed. So in my opinion, it appears that the chase starts on front of that house on, on La Gloria and ends up in the rear yard of the house on Legria. The offender kills Brian, goes and chases down and kills Katie and then hops the gate and then starts running west, which I think is significant. Why is he choosing to run west now that he's killed these two people? There's something that is putting him towards the west. But as he's running west, that's when 15-year-old Carl Nolsch, who had heard the commotions, comes out into his front yard and literally 
comes face to face with the offender running at him. The offender sees Carl, stops, turns around and starts running the opposite direction and then is lost out of sight. With everything you learned of the majority double homicide, do you believe it could be the East Area Rapist? I believe it's likely an East Area Rapist case, yes. When you when you consider that this is a, a case that is occurring uh, in an area that is immediately adjacent to where five of the first 15 known East Area Rapist attacks occurred, uh, this is his basically home base. It's a very strong anchor point for him. We know he prowls in this this particular neighborhood, and the fact that there was pre-tied shoelace, a pre-tied shoelace was found dropped on the ground next to Brian Maggiore, which we know the East Area Rapist would carry with him and bring to attack locations. Everything suggests that this was likely the East Area Rapist that killed Brian and Katie Maggiore. Paul, thank you so much for being here today. Um, not sure how many people know yet, but this is actually your last week on the job. Uh, almost 30 years, and, and now you're retiring. You've been involved in so many important cases, but obviously this one stands out. Well, how do you feel? It is a very surreal feeling to be in this position. You know, this this case has been a passion of mine and will continue to be a passion of mine, uh, whether I'm in law enforcement or whether I'm a private citizen. And there's been people that tell me you've got to live your life. You can't be one of those guys. Don't be one of those guys who just constantly obsesses about this case in, in your retirement. But uh, I think I will until the guy is caught. And in your opinion, how is this case going to be solved? Uh, in my opinion, the, the case is going to be solved with DNA. Um, that uh, is physical evidence that he left behind. It is a, a form of evidence that can actually identify him. And it's got broad technologies that are uh, available today that weren't available just a handful of years ago that we are exploring. And potentially, we might be able to narrow down and ultimately find him using those technologies. Well, having had our own deep dive into the case and having met many outstanding law enforcement officers working this case, you've definitely been an essential part of this search for answers. You've given it a lot. Um, you definitely deserve a break, but this search will be a little bit harder without you. But thank you so much from all of us for carrying the torch this far. It's been amazing getting to know you and your journey. You know, and I just have to express my appreciation for the efforts that you, you guys have done in order to accurately portray this crime series and push it out to the the public. Uh, hopefully somebody out there will recognize something and call in and uh, provide uh, us with the actual person's name as to who the Golden State Killer is. Well, thank you for being here. It's been my pleasure. If you have information about the Golden State Killer, you can call the FBI at 1-800-CALL-FBI. That's 1-800-225-5324. Or submit a tip online at tips.fbi.gov. In part three of the Unmasking a Killer documentary airing this coming Sunday night, April 1st at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific on HLN, we're exploring how the Golden State Killer was able to evade capture during his reign of terror and in the years following. 
And on the next podcast, we'll have retired Sacramento Sheriff Deputy Carol Daly and East Area Rapist victim Jane Carson detail their firsthand experiences during his two years of terrorizing Sacramento and how they feel he was able to escape justice. We'll also welcome Sacramento District Attorney Anne-Marie Schubert, who will fill us in on the current search to identify the Golden State Killer and the changes to California law that have resulted directly from this case. So watch part three of the documentary on HLN Sunday night and then listen to the podcast on Monday. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please leave us a five-star rating and review while you're there. Thanks so much for listening. 